you can be very, very good at understanding what your product does mm-hmm. and the product problems that your product solves, but you can be- become almost too focused on your product yes. and less focused on the problems that the people who are using your product have and the, the ones that they're trying to solve. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham. I'm a senior visual designer here with Each Another. And today I'm joined by a special guest, Mr. Philip Murray, UX team manager at Fenergo. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So uh, Fenergo are quite the success story in the fintech world and all the better that's an Irish story. But for those who aren't familiar with what Fenergo do, can you tell us a bit about the product and the company? Sure, yeah. Um, Fenergo... Uh, has been around for, I guess, eight or nine years uh, as a company. It's spun out of a, a services business called Ergo. The product that we have in market now has been in market for about five or six years, I suppose. What we call it is a client onboarding and lifecycle management tool. Sounds quite complicated. But primarily what we do is um, we operate with financial institutions in the capital market sector. Now, capital markets is where you trade things like debt and equity products, FX forwards, swaps, swaptions, things like that. So what we do is uh, we facilitate those financial institutions who trade in that space, when they're acquiring new clients, we help them onboard those clients and fulfill their regulatory and compliance obligations via our software. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we facilitate the onboarding process for new clients into financial institutions who are working in the capital market space. In a nutshell. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so since since 2008, is this a process that companies generally do manually with their own teams and then Fernergo is filling a need and making it more um, efficient? Yeah, there's a, there's a mix. Teams follow manual processes in the banks that we deal with. Um, a lot of the time we're replacing spreadsheets and sort of manual uh, handoffs, I guess. Um, other times we're replacing point solutions that were developed by in-house IT teams um, to deal with one regulation that was coming up. You know, it was an urgent deadline. They built something to, to meet that deadline. But then when that regulation was updated, they had to rebuild the solution from scratch. So, the, you know, those point solutions. So the, I guess there's a mix. I guess part of it is, is efficiency that we solve for. It's more making it an end-to-end process that it's it's traceable, it's auditable for the bank's record, for the client's records that they know from, from when the client was first onboarded to their current relationship, everything that's happened and everything that's been tracked and, and their different compliance statuses throughout that process. And also, um, which is the which is the key thing, I think, of our product is is what the um, client's trading status is. If they're good to trade or not good to trade, basically, is, is all the banks care about. Mm-hmm. Um, because often there's a high-pressure environment in which they want to execute a trade quickly because there's a you know there's a time pressure on the difference in exchange rates that they're going to make their margin on, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to ex- execute a trade quickly. That We need to make that process as efficient as possible, but also um, we need to be able to let, our, or at least the banks that we deal with, need to let their clients know that they're compliant to trade essentially mm-hmm. that, that this trade is going to be okay yeah it's quite a complicated industry so Fenergo basically simplifies that brings it all into one package and it's a product that teams within these banks or your clients can use as part of their daily tasks exactly at its heart it's a very simple piece of software in, in one sense in, in that it's a business process management tool so it's it's a workflow processing tool mm-hmm. um, so there's there's um, tasks that you need to complete it. So essentially when a bank onboards a new client, they need to gather a bunch of data about them. Mm-hmm. And depending on the data that they gather, they need a bunch uh, of supporting documentation to to verify that data in some instances and to other instances to, to um, fulfill the regulatory obligations that mm-hmm. they have. Essentially all we do is, is allow banks to gather that data and those documents in an efficient manner and, and to trigger different 
tasks and cases based on the data and documentation that's mm -hmm. gathered. So at a very high level, it's a simple tool. Yeah. But then there are, like you said, there are complex rules behind mm -hmm. um, the, the things that get triggered and, mm -hmm. and the types of documentation required to be gathered. And we do try to simplify that as much as possible. But mm -hmm. once you, it's funny, I've been there two years now, and the more you delve into the to the product and what it does and what it, the users of the product and the customers of the product want it to do, mm -hmm. You can't get away from the complexity of mm -hmm. the of the sort of instruments that you're dealing with yeah. and the the markets in which you operate. Mm. So it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, but I think it's the, the key thing is that the product does simplify that as much as possible. So it's making something that's complex, intuitive to use, and uh... that's exactly it. I mean, I think you, you have to remember as well that the people who are using are, are going to be experts in the areas in which they're mm -hmm. they're operating within the bank. You know, these are guys in, in what we call the banking middle office, and and they're experienced at what they do. So all we need to do is is allow them to have a, a tool that allows them to do their job more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 very much about facilitating that process for them. So you said you've you've been with Fenergo for the last two years. So, yeah. so what what's what's in, does your role entail, and what what did you do? What like what was your plan when you when you joined two years ago? Sure. Um, well, I joined in the product management space. I joined as a product manager two years ago, and really my goal was uh, at a personal level was to learn as much about um, Fenergo as a company and and the space in which we were. Um, solving problems for people. I, I was, it was more to learn about that. Mm -hmm. I think what became quite apparent early on in my career in Fenergo was that we were very customer focused as an organization. We had a lot of customer contact, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that was not at the user level. It was it was still at the customer level. So the kind of the, the guys to be buying the software, the guys to be implementing it, you know, project managers. A couple of levels above the actual users. Exactly. Kind of. And the, there was a bit of noise. Um, even within my first six, eight weeks, I'd, I'd started hearing noise about the usability of the product. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's one of those things about an enterprise solution, especially one that's grown so quickly. So mm -hmm. Fenergo, when I when I joined, was maybe 100 people mm -hmm. uh, with maybe 30 in the R&D organization. Uh, and that had grown from 12, two years previously. So it was quite a rapid rise to 100 people. And, and the client acquisition had followed a similar mm -hmm. sort of trajectory, if you like. And now we're, now we're 350 people. And then we've Significantly more more customers. So, are you looking to hire? Is it are you still looking to hire two hundred people? Is it? Or? Uh, well, we've got a hundred, at least a hundred open positions. Yeah. Yeah. So we're scaling hugely, uh, which is a great success story. Yeah. Uh, it brings with it its own challenges. But yeah. So going back to to when I started, and, and we had grown to that point, we were a hundred people, thirty in the R and D organization. I think just by the nature of the, the the way that it had scaled, that the product had been built with its function in mind. Um, it was doing its job very well. It had filled a niche in the market. In fact, it had created, in some ways, its niche. This client onboarding and lifecycle management space is largely, it's become a market segment now, but it's largely, I think, down to what Fenergo did. So in, in one sense, we were the trailblazers in, in, in this space. But yeah, because of the way the product had been built and had, had grown so quickly, I think it had been built from a functional perspective, I suppose, from a system perspective. Uh, it needed to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And maybe the users hadn't been considered or, or how it did X, Y, and Z was probably less important than, than just it did it, you know. Mm -hmm. We made a decision to, to, to try and improve that, I guess. We said we would create an in-house UX team and we would look at the user versus the customer, I suppose. And um, I think our first engagement with each another was in October or November of 2015 when we came in for a week-long workshop and mm -hmm. talked through some of that stuff. And we had John and yourself and Paul Dunnan involved. And it was it was good because what that did is um, it, it gave a, a different perspective about how you think about building a product, mm -hmm. you know, and how you can put users at the heart of design and development making decisions. That really helped. I think we got a lot of value out of that exercise. And uh, that started to prove, if you like, an ROI on, on embedding in an in-house UX capability within within Fenergo. Mm -hmm. um, so then the, the next step from that was to try and hire UX design 
uh, talent internally. It's a challenging thing to do. Uh, there's a lot of you're not the only one on the market doing it either. Everyone <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, and a lot of big companies, um, a lot of big companies are hoovering up a lot of the talent as well. Yeah. You know, so I remember I'm meeting a guy called Fred Raguia, who's uh, the head of the design studio for IBM in Dublin, and um, he just hired 75 designers when I was speaking to him. You know, and they send them off to Stanford and do design thinking training for three months and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So you know, it's hard to compete with with that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and there's an, everyone's doing UX now. So yeah. uh, especially at, even at an enterprise level, it's it's kind of definitely more common. So it's a challenging market um, to hire in. I think a lot of the people that they send over for that training as well gen- generally tend to be kind of more junior level designers, from what I'm from what I'm aware of. Whereas the subject matter that you guys are working on, I think you need someone, you need a strong experienced design team to be working on what you've got. Like it's good to have juniors there, but you need that strong seniority in there to help you kind of navigate those tricky pitfalls. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need mid to senior level people. And I, I think we need, we're also looking for people with a mix of skills, which is, you know, you're going back to that unicorn conversation in some ways, because you, you want people who can do user research because we're, I guess, because we're still such a small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need people who'll do research and then who'll um, come back and then do the the wireframing and prototyping, yeah. and then also get involved with the um, build teams when they're doing it. So the, there's a there's a, a number of skills you need to to come into an organization like Fenergo, and and then not only are we asking people to do that kind of thing, then we're also asking them to to transfer the knowledge across, yeah, to build the capability and and help be evangelists for UX within the organization. So there's there's a huge range of things we expect of our of our team members. So it's it's a challenging environment in which to step. That's why the UX salaries are quite high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to yeah. work for what you're getting paid. Yeah, that's yeah. it. But you know, so yeah, you're right. I mean, I think as the team grows potentially, and maybe um, when we've got potentially a library of UI patterns and uh, a, a sort of a, a UX process and, mm-hmm. and 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 that kind of stuff that's embedded. I think maybe you could start hiring junior designers into the organization then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's probably something that um, you can look at with the senior people that you have in the team already for them to start mentoring yes. you know, more yeah. junior people, which yeah. is the way that UX capability grows throughout the industry, I suppose, regardless of, of what's happening within Finergo uh, on its own. Uh, because certainly from my hiring experience, I've interviewed an awful lot of uh, UX candidates over the last 18 months. There's a lot of people who may not be UX designers who are saying they are. Mm-hmm. They might be graphic designers, web designers, things like that, who've got sort of possibly slightly disingenuous. They might have UX um, aspects to their role. Mm-hmm. But I think that maybe I'm being, again, uh, I, I think we're, we're doing something different to everybody else. But I think UX design for enterprise software in a complex environment mm-hmm. brings its own challenges and it needs a specific skill set. And I'm not sure there's a huge amount of those people out there. Yeah. And there's not a lot of industry specific training, I guess, that people can do that will help them move into roles such as those. Absolutely. I think you're, I'm sure other companies are seeing the same thing, you know, applications when you put those two letters, those two letters UX in a title for a job description that you've, or job opportunity that you have, it's almost like $2, $2 signs. Like, you know, so you'll, you'll have a lot of people who are trying to transition over from, you know, as you're saying, graphic design or possibly even industrial design or different different areas, even even uh, business analysts converting over. It's a it's a, an attractive industry but again you need for the level of work that you guys are doing like the complexity you, there's a there's a definite those set of skills that you mentioned like the ability to be able to go to the end end to end process of like framing the problem you know running all the workshops you know i mean the ux ux job title is there's a lot involved in it you know um facilitating workshops all this type of stuff is part and parcel of the job yeah and i think you you probably see in and maybe in design-led organizations that they'd have those jobs set out as discrete roles you know yes. you'll have a ux research team and you'll have a mm-hmm. a content strategy team and, and and things like that whereas probably in enterprise organizations the ux designer 
is expected to do all of those things or several of those things. So, so that is a challenge, but you're right. Um, there's nothing to say that somebody coming from a graphic design or web design background, in fact, I've just hired someone with a digital design background. It doesn't mean they, they can't transition to the role, but I, I guess what we're looking for is a specific skill set. Mm. Um, and I think, I think the IADT and their, their, their postgraduate diploma program now and their, their master's program that they're yeah. running, which is kind of industry focused and, mm. and, and a lot of industry people were involved in crafting the, the curriculum for that. Mm. And I think John's involved as a, as a... I think he's an external examiner, yeah. External yeah. examiner for it as well. So I think the more industry that gets involved in courses like that, yeah. that's going to bring people through and, and allow them to transition into, into these kind of roles. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I graduated from IADT as well. If no, nothing but good things it's to say college, about the college. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. So you're mentioning like at the moment, you those the, the, the UX designers or your team members are kind of expected to be, you won't say uni, unicorns, but isn't uh, generalists. All-rounders. Yeah, we'll all-rounders, yeah. Is that is there an intention that, it'll, you know, as you as you grow, that you get on, you, you, you build a, uh, you know, specialists within the team as opposed to a team of general, generalists? I think what we're finding is that there's certainly from the team level that, that there is enough to do in each of those areas that it would require a, a distinct per, a person per role. Because um, I think what happens is, so we, we, we do some research um, ourselves. We, we go out and we, we go to client sites and we, we shadow users and we, we, you know, we talk to them and, and try and figure out what it is they're doing. And the interesting thing about those types of engagements is you see the, the before and after mm-hmm. of when they're using the tool. So it's, it's not just what they're doing in the tool. It's what they do before they use it, what they have to do before they use it and what they do after. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable that we were just talking about um, Finogo being a workflow tool, but sometimes that there's a, a manual process before it and a manual process after it that yes. you, you could probably help with. But yeah. if you weren't observing that um, behavior in, a, in an office environment, you wouldn't you necessarily build it into your product. Because um, I think what, what you can do, you can be very, very good at understanding what your product does mm-hmm. and the product problems that your product solves, but you can be- become almost too focused on your product yes. and less focused on the problems that the people who are using your product have and that the ones that they're trying to solve. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a, a distinction between those two things that um, if you, the more you understand about your users problems that aren't to do with your product, the more you'll understand the things that your product can do for them. Absolutely. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's kind of like your product, if you think your product like a car and you're, you're constantly tuning it up and you think, oh, what it needs is this new, these new wheels and this faster engine. And then when you actually go and shadow your users or do some proper like ethnographic research, you realize what they need is a trailer that hooks onto the back of the of, the, of your your car or whatever to be able to do all this other work that you weren't you, you wouldn't have realized as you're saying until you actually go and meet the users and see how they're actually working. And yeah. um, because Finergo is obviously it's a tool that people spend a lot of their day working in. I would imagine, yeah, that's the thing is is um is and it's part of the motivation of the team is to to make that an enjoyable experience mm-hmm. because yeah, like you said, that the people could be head down in the Finergo tool for for seven hours a day, mm. um, and it, it could be quite repetitive depending on the type of uh, operation within which you operate. You know, some of our clients will have teams who have all rounders on them who are doing several different tasks, which is probably not a bad way to spend your day. But if you're, you could be an AML expert, for example, a- AML is uh, anti money laundering, mm. so you might be doing screenings for, um, you know, different associations to clients and seeing whether they've got any, any dodgy pasts. You mm. know that you're not, you're not um, the source of their funds is is legitimate, for example. So somebody could be just doing screenings all day and mm. so we need to make sure and screenings is just a 
small part of what the Finogo tool does. Mm. Um, so you need to make sure that the screenings process not only does what it's supposed to do and does it efficiently and makes sense and is intuitive, but also it makes somebody think, I don't mind doing that for yes. seven hours a day. You know, it's like I'm going to enjoy, as I enjoy working with it. But if you can create some kind of engagement between the user and the tool, yeah. Uh, it makes their day, you know, less painful. Absolutely, yeah. But sometimes it takes moving from something from a product that feels that's intuitive to use and makes their job easier to back to something else, and then you realize, oh god, this is so difficult. It makes my life so, you know, those points of grating, and uh, if you get complacent about your your product, and you, there, you have those moments of friction throughout the process, then you're kind of you're building, and you've got a, a big bank of users. You're possibly building up user debt because if you've got someone who comes along, a disruptor who does you know, what you're doing only in a more streamlined way, more intuitive way, you could lose them to that market. But obviously the fact that you're refining, you're making <laughs> you're making all the steps um, optimized, that's a, that's a good thing to do. Yeah, we're, we're definitely trying anyway. Um, but it's an interesting point because um, another side of that is is users learn behavior. Talking about learned behaviors, I remember working with a different clients and they, they had this, the, the tool that they were using, um, it was in the insurance industry. It, it basically looked like, like MS-DOS, kind of like a green, black screen with mm -hmm. green, text and stuff and they flew around it they like they were very quick um yeah. but they were like if i couldn't if, I, if you asked me to show you how to do this i couldn't show, i couldn't explain it to you like yeah. it would take you ages to learn how to do it but i'm so familiar with it that i i can do i can use it really quickly so it's kind of people will learn if they have to work with something eight hours a day or whatever they'll learn how to use it they'll you know but if you can optimize that and make it easier for for people people to use then obviously as you're saying before it makes the whole experience uh, much better and as a, as, a, as a result you know your product is your brand as well so yeah. um, the customer experience the brand experience is, is much better absolutely and it's an interesting point because when you said that about being able to fly around a, a system that isn't necessarily intuitive mm -hmm. what we have to cater for when we're building the, the product and, and embedding it into a, a banking middle office sort of operation is that it's more efficient than the manual process that it supposed to be replacing and mm. people have been doing this thing maybe for several years 10 years however inefficient it may seem from a automation point of view mm -hmm. it can be an efficient process within a bank you know somebody knows their job very well yeah. they can they know where to go to get things and they know mm. how to answer the questions if you're not improving that experience for them then you're just kind of creating a blocker and that's another sort of experience angle that you need to tackle is that everything you do needs to be better than than the things that you're replacing not just from a, a, a product we're satisfying banks requirements in terms of we've automated this process but mm -hmm. you know that automation needs to be quicker and better it can't just be a like for like uh, digital version exactly of or, or in some cases worse yeah so what does the the shape of your team look like so currently we have we have me uh and we have two UX designers, uh, Kieran Levingston and Philippe Montero. They're both very good at what they do. And how we interact with the rest of the organization, I guess, we're, we sit within the R&D organization. So we have a lot of different touch points, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And primarily, I suppose our focus is we, we work very close with the product management team at a roadmap level. So we're, we're kind of strategically focused in the sense that we we're trying to design what's coming next on the roadmap. And what we try to do is, is, is look at a release or two releases ahead and then engage with users to research those pieces that are coming up um, within one to two releases and then and then come back to the office and because I, I think I think design does need some upfront thought especially in those organizations where engineering teams are using agile processes that you know if you're making decisions on the fly with no empirical evidence behind them it's, it's very difficult and I think that's what design research helps you do is, is to get to gather some evidence that um, validates your decision making mm -hmm. um, so we try and we try and work a couple of releases ahead we engage with our users and 
I think from a company point of view, we, we try to have a community-based approach to everything we do. So we've got four distinct communities, if you like. We've got a, a user community that it's it's my job, I suppose, uh, not just to manage the UX team but and to embed UXs within the organization, but to build a, a user community that we we can communicate with as and when we need. So, so your clients, your, your customers, yeah. Yeah, customers. So like I said earlier, we're very customer focused, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes the touch points with our customers aren't necessarily the users. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes. as was traditional in enterprise software, the, the software would be designed by the people who are not going to be ultimately using it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and even still, um, we've changed now. We we're moving to a more, or we have moved actually to a more uh, agile delivery model on our projects. Mm-hmm. So when our professional services teams engage with clients, they're, they're doing iterative delivery with them. I think what, what used to happen uh, was that the Finergo team and the, the bank team, if you like, would get together and, and decide how the software was going to be different to the core product that we ship, you know, what configurations they needed, etc. And then there'd be a user testing phase at the end. It was kind of waterfally, if you like. Yeah. So the users would get to engage with the software after it had been designed and built. And then they'd be like, oh, it doesn't really do this. And uh, how do I do that? Yes. Um, and that's when the noise starts to sort of bubble back up. So what we've tried to do now is is to engage with the people who actually be using the software as, as opposed to the people who should be, who will be designing and building it. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the processes. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the research phase. So yes. even before we build anything that's going into the core product that will eventually hit the professional services teams, we've engaged with the people who will be using it in, in 12 months time, whenever it gets shipped. So when people talk about failing, it's, that's a good point there. So it's, it's, it's better to fail after five days and prototyping something than five months of building something and putting it in front of a user and finding that it's not doing the job. Exactly. We thought we, we've just looked at how we manage. So managing documents is a huge part of the product. Mm-hmm. And we've just done a lot of research since probably we've been engaged with a whole bunch of different users uh, from different clients mm-hmm. over the last few months on this. And we've kind of gone back to them over time. Uh, but one of the cool ideas that we had, we talked about it the other day with a user working group on documentation and uh, documentation management. And we were like, so we're, we're thinking of doing this and this and this. And they're like, well, no, you wouldn't do that. Um, it makes sense and it, it could be good, but mm-hmm. the, this isn't where our focus would be. Our focus would be somewhere else. Yes. So what we've done there is we've thrown something into Exure, we've shown it to them and they've said, not a good idea. And so we've just thrown that one away. So that's not going to even hit a user story or a development team or anything. Mm-hmm. It's going to be no time wasted beyond our time, which mm-hmm. is the best time to, to <laughs> our, our time is the best time to waste. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's as I say, like people talk about fa- failure, like it's best to fail fast, but it's actually, it's, it's not really failure. It's it's like it's learning. It's learning absolutely. It, it's not wasting sure, your time. Yeah, it's making sure you're solving the right problem. Yeah. Do you know, because you can you can spend so much time refining a solution to the wrong problem instead of having a, a look at lots of different solutions to the right problem and then coming up with the best one. Yeah, yeah I stole that from John Wood. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's full of uh, he's full of uh, great he's very quotable yeah. yes so you mentioned obviously the first time we we, we kind of met and, and looked over the product together it was 2015 um and then last year myself and Kieran Harris were went in and worked with you guys for a number of months redesigning some of the aspects of the of the product which I thought was great it was totally a very interesting domain area very complex com- complex but uh challenging in all the way in all the right ways what was the impact for you guys uh from that engagement? I think it was several fold, really. Um, I think the one thing, so we were we were at the point in, in time, we were still trying to hire a UX capability internally. And I think why we turned to you is because we didn't do that. And I have a long history with, with each other, with Paul and, and guys like that. So I, I knew that it would be a, the right place to come, mm-hmm. uh, if you like. So what we were trying to do, we were trying to embed UX within the organization. Uh, and what we did have was executive support for that. Um, so from the CEO down, uh, so Mark, 
Murphy, the CEO, is 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 very keen to have design as a as a key you know differentiator mm-hmm. um, for the product. And, and Niall, the CTO, is is our key sort of executive sponsor, I suppose, internally. So what we did have was executive sponsorship for for that hiring of of the internal capability. Um, what we found was it's difficult to do, like I like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing that happened was that when we brought experienced guys like yourself and Kieran on board, it was almost a an immediate sign that things can be can be good and can be different i think that the sorts of things that we started to do um even when we were working together initially you know we started to whiteboard problems um as, instead of defining solutions immediately do you know and yeah. we were drilling into to the problems that we were trying to solve and i think just that shift in mindset um started to to permeate throughout the development teams and the design teams so i think that was that was one thing it was like an immediate yeah, we've made the right decision to go along this course, you know, because it had been essentially, you know, get a UX team. Uh, each another came on board and it was like, okay, UX team makes sense because they do things like this and, you know, they, they add value here. So that was one thing. And then I think what else happened was we we managed to sort of accelerate some of the... So we, we were embarking on a sort of a redesign phase of many aspects of the product, like you said. And we were also rebuilding the, the client-side framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a there was a large chunk of work to do, and I think what we managed to do, uh, we've got a lot of engineers within the company, and we need to feed them <laughs> stuff yeah. to do, you know. Uh, and I think what we did was what we managed to do um, when when you guys came on board was we managed to start feeding them, mm-hmm. um, and but not not just that, starting to involve them in the decision making processes as well. So I think that um, I think that's one of the things that's that's missed is that cross team, that cross functional collaboration that that you you bring. Um, is that you know? Obviously, you need to to understand the the framework, the architecture within which you're working. We built the new client side framework on on React.js, and um, we've built our own sort of bespoke components. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, what we find is that we need to build different ones depending on what we design into the product or what yeah. we say should be designed into the product. We we tended to have we've we've got a lot better at it now, but we tended to have this culture of um, meetings were in a minimum of a half an hour block and they were in a meeting room and you know you sat down you talked about stuff and then you left Mm -hmm. um there were teams who whiteboarded problems before but i think it became a um it became you know cultural if you like that we became uh more guys i need to talk about something i'm putting this design together uh so you you get a business analyst a, Mm a developer a designer and a product manager together at a whiteboard and you'd say like you know and you'd, you'd work through the problem um, very quickly and it'd be sense. it'd be five ten minutes and then a decision would be made and you'd move away mm-hmm. you'd move on back in ormond house where we were where where at the time there wasn't that many whiteboards and you guys brought your little roll of whiteboard um paper and everyone loved it and everyone wanted it you know so everyone wanted to start whiteboarding stuff make every wall a whiteboard yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i mean it was and and when we moved to the new office that was a big um a big driver was we put whiteboards everywhere so that we could have more of those collaborative sessions and we built the office around collaboration spaces as opposed to meeting rooms you know mm-hmm. there are a lot of meeting rooms obviously yeah. um but we, we we put a lot of collaboration spaces in to the building because we knew we want we needed that sort of quick cross-functional discussion if you like and Absolutely. i suppose that was that was another thing that 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 you helped embed within within the organization yeah i think that's a, that's that's a common thing within within larger organizations or you know more kind of uh, enterprise software com- uh, organizations but it's that thing of like that's part that's a key part of bringing design into into a company so it's not like you know people think of design think of like outputs of visuals or whatever screens but it's, it's that type of thing where you're making decisions quickly you're discounting things that won't work 
um, and getting getting prototypes or getting from some sketches on a whiteboard to some prototypes and getting it into someone's hands early and testing and see if it works. If it doesn't, that's great. We found out early. We can move on to the next thing um, or to test multiple things in a row. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot because a, a lot of what we say is design is not how it looks, it's how it works. But it's, mm-hmm. it's beyond that even. It's it's how the company works. Yeah, as how a it whole. thinks. It's, yeah, how, how it thinks and works. Know, yeah, um, How it thinks, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's great because uh, I remember when we, when we were working together, actually, and you guys were redesigning everything in React um the all the, the new, new components and all it was a very exciting time actually and there's a big good buzz within the de- development team as well and i think when we came aboard we kind of changed the look and feel in quite a short space of time which was really good we and you know we put stuff put stuff up on the walls and made everything very clear and remember we put things up in the kitchen and all where yeah. we were other people who wouldn't see what we were doing on different floors That's could it. kind of interact with and get and give their initial feedback because these are people in the customer supports teams and the sales team so um even even for them to see, you know, how things were changing as well. There was good feedback and it kind of generated a bit of, I, I felt it generated a bit of a buzz as well. Yeah, it did. And and the one thing about us is that we are very customer focused as an organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, uh, what that did as well was it engendered that discussion. It was like, you know, you, you don't want to become siloed, especially, you know, when we're talking about building that design culture, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to become siloed. So uh, opening things up to discussion, um, especially with people who, who interface with with clients and users uh, on a regular basis so our professional services teams what we did because we were very much on we were just on physically separated and we were on two different floors in yeah. the building so like you said we just put large pictures of the what we were proposing as designs onto the walls and allowed people comment good or bad it was great to hear yeah. any feedback uh, but yeah so i mean definitely all of that yeah helped. i've got a mental image of the uh, pizza pizza mondays yeah <laughs> and people kind of like oh yeah putting posters up on you the can imagine what pizza monday looks like now when there's, there must be 200 people in the office yeah it's, just, yeah it's been a while so <laughs> yeah. a lot of pizza yeah <laughs> almost popped down to the office in that you must I'll, I'll partake in the pizza too um so you've been in the company two years um, how has the how has the culture changed within the company or how does it continue to change i i think it's always been quite a an open flat structure organizationally i think that um mark um, is a is a very well, he's a very busy man number one and he's always I think he's uh, I read an interview with the Sunday Times that he did and he took 170 flights last year so that shows you how often he's not in the country wow. but when he is in the office he's very he's a he, he's very present if mm-hmm. you like he's not yeah. just locked away in his office mm-hmm. he's everywhere he's around the place and he knows what's going on mm-hmm. and that's what I found uh, as soon as I joined so for example I'd only been with the company six weeks when I went into his office and I said you know I think we need a UX team. Um, so that's that kind of gives you, I think, an impression of, of how open the organization is. Yeah. Um, I think potentially was more traditionally structured in a hierarchical sense two years ago. I think we've we've tried to. There's a huge there's a huge push from the executive team for us to to have a great culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to to engender with an organization. You can't just decide one day we're going to have a great culture. Um mm-hmm. So I think what there's a lot of um, ongoing work that that we do to to try and build that. But one of the things is is organizationally we're trying to move away from from that hierarchical decision making, and we're trying to delegate decision making to lower parts within the organization, and and to empower people to make decisions and and for those decisions to stick. Yeah. So I think that's a huge thing. I think that's um, that's changed, and I think that when we talk about building that culture. Um, We've, we've changed the environment significantly. So we've moved into a new office, obviously, which is a yeah. bigger space and there's collaborative areas and uh, there's a pool table and a beer fridge and all the usual sort of uh, accoutrements that you'd expect of a modern office. Um, but I think there can be a difference and there's a huge there's a huge difference between environment, I think, and, 
and culture. And I think sometimes the two things are conflated, mm-hmm. uh, that the environment in which you work is is sometimes mistaken for the culture. Um, um, and I think that um, I did some work for an offsite recently on building organizational sort of culture and how, how to embed a new culture within an organization. And I remember uh, one of the things I read, I think it might have been Ben Horowitz or someone like that, who said that culture is what happens when you're not there. You know, so um, if, if none of the management team were there, mm-hmm. would the same things happen? Do you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's a really good point to make. And I think cause, because culture is, is learned behavior, if you like. Mm-hmm. In fact, on, on the cycle over here, um, I was just thinking about it. And I saw um, cars driving through red lights, at least two cars drive through a red light. Mm-hmm. And that that's culture, that's learned behavior, because you know, it's that's what every other car driver does. And it doesn't matter if you've come from Germany, which is a culture in which you stop at every red light, whether mm-hmm. there's traffic around or not. Um, when you move to Ireland, you you drive through red lights because that's <laughs> that's learned behavior, you know. And I think it's, grand, sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think that you know it's the same thing. It's like, do you do the right thing when there's nobody watching? Mm-hmm. Is essentially what what culture is at an organizational level. And and the only way you can make sure that people do is by making them understand that the right thing is is that is the right thing happens at all levels all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 a, a cascading effect in some senses in that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about moving away from a hierarchical thing, but if, if people at the top are doing the right things all the time, mm. um, then that, that cascades down. And then it, when it's cascaded down and people are doing the right thing all the time, then you've get, then you've got a culture. Um, so empower, empowering the teams to make. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, they're very smart people. Everyone in the company is very smart that I met. So Yeah, I mean, you're hiring people to do, you know, things that they're good at. Mm-hmm. They've obviously, they've got, they've got the job because they've convinced you that they're very good at the thing that they do. Yeah. Uh, so allow them to do it, you know, and create that culture. Don't sort of... Um, stick them in a, a little box and, and sort of tell them to do Finergo specific things, mm-hmm. allow them to help Finergo grow as a company by learning what they've done from elsewhere and by helping them make decisions and uh, empowering them, like you said, to, to be a part of the the growing sort of success that, that we are. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in, uh, you know, company strategy should, should be something that's not presented every six months to the team. It should be something that people, team members can use their initiative to, to inch it forward in that direction like to, so they can come up with things that they feel will bring the company in, in the right direction and obviously don't don't go in a maverick way but you know communicate it with the team but if i mean if you if you come up with ideas that are going to push you in the right direction it's unlikely something someone's going to say no that's not a good idea you know absolutely yeah and i think it's 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 that thing i think because the worst thing you can do is is for people to have ideas and then for that voice not to be heard mm-hmm. uh, and regardless of what the level of of person who's having the idea is I think that all voices should be equal in, in that sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if, if you, if you don't allow that to happen, you will stop people having ideas or, or they'll just stop speaking out because like, well, you know what, uh, there's no point. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, looking forward to see how the team shapes over, over time. I know you've got like 150 roles to fill. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to see how the team grows from 350 to 500 and, and, and on and on. Absolutely. It's going to be an exciting time, I think, for Fenergo and for, for the fintech space in general. The reg tech space, I think, is where we, we technically fit. Um, but yeah, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping obviously, that, that it's, it's a big challenge. I think 36 people joined in the last month. So, you know, onboarding new people is a big challenge. But I'm hoping that as the team grows, um, the Fenergo team, the Fenergo family, and obviously the UX team grows with it. Um, because I think, 
we're seeing that we've we've added value to the organization i think we can continue to add value uh, and i hope that uh, our relationship with uh, with each another continues as well as do we, as do we. <laughs> i think i can safely say yeah it's great to see you grow and i'm looking forward to see see you guys uh, take over the world yeah me too yeah thanks very much for your time today phil yeah, i enjoyed it thanks great stuff till next time